Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If someone says the name Maimonides, there's no question which figure comes up in the minds of most people. Moses Maimonides is one of the most famous intellectuals in history, and for good reason. His rationalist philosophy, and even more so his legal writings, have had an enormous impact on the development of Judaism. But while he is definitely a very fascinating figure that is worth talking about, there is another Maimonides There is to me, equally as interesting, his son, Abraham. Abraham Maimonides not only succeeded his father as the head of the Jewish community in Egypt, but also, and in contrast to his father's heavily rationalistic philosophy, also became the figurehead of a pietistic movement in Egypt that was heavily influenced by Islamic mysticism or Sufism in their renunciant and ascetical slash mystical practices. It is indeed difficult to talk about Abraham Maimonides without doing so in connection to the incredible career of his father. Having come from Al-Andalus, or Spain originally, Maimonides the Elder had fled from his homeland to eventually settle in Fustat, close to modern Cairo in Egypt. Here he eventually became the leader of the Jewish community, as he was not only a greatly learned philosopher, but also a legal expert and authority on the halakha, the Jewish law. 
Indeed, his probably most significant work from a Jewish point of view was his monumental Mishneh Torah, a massive work that attempts to basically go through the entire Jewish law and categorize it in ways that had never been done before. In the more purely philosophical sphere, he is better known for the work known as the More Nebuchim, or the Guide for the Perplexed, in which he presents his rationalistic, Aristotelian-influenced philosophy. Needless to say, Maimonides was already a giant during his own lifetime, and even though he was controversial among many, he held a great deal of authority. His son, Abraham Maimonides, was born in Fustat in Egypt in the late 1180s and grew up watching his father perform his various duties, as physician to the Ayyubid Sultan Saladin, as a philosopher and as the head of the Jewish community in the region, taking on many visitors and giving advice on matters on Jewish religion. He would have learned a lot from his father, being taught how to perform communal duties, rabbinic law, science and medicine, and studying philosophy through the Guide for the Perplexed, and would indeed inherit most of these roles upon his father's death. Abraham himself eventually also became known as the Nagid, the head of the Egyptian Jewish community, just like his father was. There could be various reasons for this, among them probably the fact that his father was so loved by many, but he seems to have had a reputation as a great legal scholar and thinker himself, even before coming the Ra'is, or head of the community. Judah al-Harizi wrote about Abraham that he was, quote, young in years, but great in knowledge, a young man who makes fools out of the wise. His role as leader wasn't uncontested though, and some prominent individuals in Egypt opposed it. But it seems that he could have been given this title as early as 1205, when he would have been only 19 years old, and thus almost immediately after his father's death. In many of the ways mentioned, Abraham followed in his father's footsteps. He not only managed communal affairs for basically all Jews living in Egypt, but also served as a physician to the Ayyubid Sultan, a privileged job that also allowed him to gain benefits for the Jews through his close relationship with the ruling Muslim elite. On top of this, Abraham also regularly worked at the hospital in Cairo, tending to the sick from all communities living there. The Muslim medical chronicler Ibn Abi Usaybiya, who also worked alongside Abraham in the hospital, had this to say about him, quote, He was a celebrated physician, learned in the art of medicine and skilled in its practice. He worked in the service of the king, Al-Kamil. He also frequently left the royal palace to tend to the sick in the hospital in Cairo. I met him in Cairo during my medical appointment in the hospital in 631 or 632 and found him to be a tall gentleman, slender in build and refined in manners, elegant in conversation and outstanding as a physician. In other ways, however, he diverged from his father quite dramatically, primarily for the fact that he became the central figure and head of a movement of Jewish pietism that sought to reform the prayers of the Jewish service, the prayer service, as well as uh, perform certain renunciant and ascetical practices that were heavily influenced by the Islamic mystics or Sufis that was so prevalent in this region at the time. Abraham and his movement represent a very fascinating time when the coexistence of Islam and Judaism could produce some really fascinating results and provide us with a really cool example of interreligious influence and dialogue, albeit sometimes indirectly, as well as a general look into the world of medieval Judaism and Islam. So to fully grasp this topic, let's first get an overview of this very significant time and place. This was a very eventful time in various different ways. Politically, especially in Egypt, the Ayyubid dynasty led by Salahuddin or Saladin had just recently toppled the Fatimids, an Ismaili Shi'i dynasty that had ruled the region for centuries prior. 
the larger Islamic world was ruled by various small and large kingdoms, the Abbasid caliphs in Baghdad essentially only being a symbolic authority at this point. In Al-Andalus, the puritanical Almohads had just entered the scene, which was one of the main reasons that Maimonides the Elder had to leave the area and settled in a more welcoming Egypt. Jews lived all across the Islamic world at the time and thrived in many ways, except in certain places like Almohad Spain that I just mentioned. There were Jews living in Muslim-majority regions, as well as in Europe where Christianity dominated. And even though there were contacts between these groups, we sometimes see them developing separately in some unique ways. As always, religions and cultures adapt and change depending on the time and place in which they find themselves, and this is true here as well, as we will see. Intellectually, this was an insanely vibrant time in which we see some of the most major thinkers in history appearing across different communities. Maimonides, Thomas Aquinas, Ibn Arabi, Ibn Rushd, and many more. Sufism, often called Islamic mysticism, had started to really flourish at around this time and was widespread all across the Islamic world to the point of being essentially mainstream. And not long after the lives of the Maimonideses, we see the emergence of Kabbalah within Judaism. So this is an incredibly fascinating time in which a lot is happening on a number of fronts and Abraham Maimonides' pietist movement is one significant result of this. Sufism had become a significant part of mainstream Islam and was thus a very visible and key feature of Muslim-majority societies. Their characteristic renunciation practices and often very strict devotional regimen proved very inspirational to people across religious borders. Already with the Jewish figure of Bahia ibn Paquda, we can see influences from Sufism finding its way into Judaism. In his very significant work entitled The Duties of the Heart, he presents spiritual and ascetic practices that showcase clear influences from the language and concepts of the Sufis at the time. Bahia and his book represents a general trend at the time, one of an increased popularity for asceticism and related practices. In the words of Russ Fishbane, quote, Jews from Iberia to Iraq in the second half of the 12th and first half of the 13th centuries increasingly drew from Sufi models of ascetic piety, including adopting suppurgatory prayers, strict regimens of fasting, and solitary retreats in the desert and mountainside. This seems to be corroborated by the writings of Moses Maimonides himself, who refers to these individuals within the Jewish community at the time and mocks them essentially for imitating the practices of other nations. And indeed, this was a major point of discussion, as well as one of the major controversies surrounding the later movement that would develop. The very harsh response from some Jewish authorities that uh, attacked people like Abraham and claiming that they had adopted practices from other religions like the Muslims, something that was not allowed in the religion of Judaism. Uh, and this is something that Abraham himself would respond to in some very interesting ways. And with all this said, it is interesting to note that there was often a level of respect shown towards some Gentiles or other religious communities, at least in some ways. The already mentioned Bahia ibn Pakuda claimed in his work to draw a quote from the saints and sages of every society, and philosophers like Maimonides greatly admired his Muslim peers. And partly as a result of his influence, the general perspective that many Jews would adopt was one where, on the one hand, Christianity was often seen as idolatrous heresy and as essentially polytheism, and on the other, Islam and the Muslims were at least respected for the fact that they upheld a very strict monotheism. About Islam, he writes, quote, The children of Ishmael have, for their part, adopted this monotheistic faith from the children of Israel and have built the foundation of their religion upon it. 
They have rejected the error and folly of their ancestor who used to worship idols and did not affirm the unity and exaltedness of God's name. As it is written, quote, Nations shall come to you from the ends of the earth and say, Our ancestors have inherited lies, vanity, that is of no avail. And it is perhaps with Abraham himself, the Nagid or head of the Egyptian Jewish community in the early 13th century, that we see the culmination of this increased interest and tendency of Islamic Sufi interaction and influence. Indeed, his pietist mystical movement serves as the most daring and extreme example of this religious dialogue, one that became very controversial to his co-religionists. But what was this movement all about? What Abraham or the Nagid did was to instigate a new devotional style, both on an individual mystical level and in terms of communal practices. There seems to have been an inner circle of which Abraham was the leader that upheld a strict spiritual regimen, one that seemed very similar to the Islamic Sufis. These practices included the emphasis on a teacher-student relationship, the importance of having a sheikh that could teach you the ways of the path, as well as intense fasting during the days and nightly vigils in which one would pray for long periods of time. So the pietist would fast during the day and then neglect sleeping by instead spending most of the night in additional prayers. Furthermore, there seems to have been an emphasis on individual meditation and contemplation, and even pietists going on spiritual retreats, or khalwa in Arabic, where they would spend 40 days in complete solitude, focusing on prayer and meditation. These renunciants and ascetic practices had the aim of purifying the soul and to eventually instigate a mystical illuminative experience, thus, according to Abraham, perfecting the Jewish devotional life and even having prophetic and messianic implications, as we will see later. This was quite unusual for the Jews at the time. This focus on individual, solitary meditation and prayer seemed to go against the very common idea within mainstream Judaism that emphasizes the importance of communal practices and communal prayers in the synagogue, for example. Abraham and his group didn't neglect these aspects of religion, of course, and they even engaged themselves with trying to reform the practices in the synagogues, the communal prayers, and the way that they were performed, as we will see later. But these, this emphasis that Abraham put on mystical contemplative practices did become quite controversial to some. As we saw, this wasn't completely new within Judaism, with the figure of Bahir and Pakuda serving as a good example of similar tendencies in earlier periods, but it was a break with the common practices in the region at the time. The pietists around Abraham Maimonides performed spiritual exercises of solitary prayer and meditation, coupled with strict rules of fasting and asceticism, all under the guidance of an experienced teacher. The intimate details of these practices are hard to get at, since there is, after all, a level of esotericism around it, given the role of the spiritual guide to disclose these teachings. We do know that Abraham suggested that practitioners prepare a separate part of one's house in which one can be alone and in which is dedicated to these practices in particular. Prayers would have been performed while sitting on the knees as well as while standing. We also know that music was sometimes involved in some way. Indeed, music was seen as an important and useful tool to arouse spiritual states and help orient the soul during these practices. Abraham encourages the pietists to recite prayers in a harmonious melody, and musical instruments may have been employed in some way too. Just like his father, he connects the use of music with prophecy and the biblical prophets in pointing out its usefulness. He writes, quote, 
In order to attain solitude that leads to communion with God, the prophets and their followers used musical instruments and melodies, seeking to arouse the faculty towards God, may he be exalted, and to empty the mind of anything but him. He points to the fact that many of the biblical prophets of ancient times in Israel would use music and musical instruments to induce states in which they would receive their prophecies. And this connection of practices to biblical precedents becomes very important for Abraham. Indeed, as we have pointed out on multiple occasions, and as many of you have probably noticed, a lot of these practices are very similar to some of the key features of Sufism as it existed in the Islamic world at the time. Many of the rabbinic authorities of the time accused the pietist movement of heresy and of copying and adopting practices from a Gentile religion, Islam, something that was forbidden in Jewish law. But Abraham had a clear response to this criticism. While it is difficult for us to deny that there must have been some influence from the Sufi movement at this time, and Abraham doesn't deny that to the full extent, but he does claim that these practices aren't really taken from the Sufis. Instead, they represent ancient Israelite practices that had been lost after the exile period in Babylon. The only reason that there are similarities between what the pietists were doing and the Sufis is that the Sufis had somehow discovered or preserved a tradition that was originally Jewish or Israelite. Thus, they are not imitating Islam, but simply reviving the original true Israelite devotion. This argument is stressed even more as similar controversies erupt around Abraham's prayer reforms, so synagogue prayer reforms. Remember, he wasn't just the peer or a leader of the pietist movement, he was also the head of the Jewish community in Egypt more generally. And when it comes to communal practices in synagogues, Abraham saw a lot that he wanted to change here too. He complained of the disorderly nature of these affairs, with people sitting along the walls of the synagogue. Compare this to the Muslims, who by comparison appeared much more organized, standing in perfect rows and praying in complete unison. Abraham wanted to reform these communal practices in the synagogue too, in ways that seemed to bring them a lot closer to the customs of the Muslims. While he never seemed to have actually implemented these changes on a communal level, it is clear that this was his eventual aim. His reforms included that the Jews would stand in orderly rows and do things like bowing and even full prostration with the forehead to the ground, something that was entirely associated with Islamic prayers and not with Jewish practice. For this reason, he was again attacked and heavily criticized by many authorities in the Jewish community who felt that he was again adopting Gentile practices into Judaism. His response to this was exactly the same. He wasn't imitating the Muslims. He was simply reviving the ways that the Israelites would have prayed in pre-exile times and providing biblical support for his claims. He says, quote, Be careful in this matter not to confuse a new idea and custom with ancient ones that have been neglected to the point of being forgotten and only later brought to the attention of the community, restore and revitalized. This is the case in the matter concerning us here, that of prostration, which we are now discussing. For prostration is an obligation of the law and ancient custom of the people, a fact neglected over the course of many years in exile. And when one has been made aware that it is an obligation and thus puts it into practice, it appears to the deluded and ignorant as if it was a religious innovation. It is an innovation only in relation to the intermediate time in which it was defunct, not in relation to the time of the original community. It is really interesting that in his defense of these prayer reforms and in the mystical practices of the pietists, he seemed to kind of affirm the common narrative of the Muslims, which is that the practices and ideas of Islam is the original version of 
you know, Judaism uh, that has been forgotten later by the Jewish community. That isn't exactly what Abraham is saying. He's saying that the Muslims have adopted some of those practices and ideas that were present in the Israelite community, but the idea is very similar. Could this be another result of him living in Muslim-dominated lands and interacting with the intellectual world of Islam and its ideas? It's possible, but he also seems very convinced of his ideas and bases a lot of it in scripture, as we saw. It is an absolutely fascinating example of interreligious influence and dialogue. Now, this should not be taken as some kind of indication of a lacking commitment to Judaism. Abraham was fully convinced that he was reviving true Judaism as the true religion of God. Through the practices of the pietists that he saw as having resurrected, he saw a way of perfecting Jewish worship and restoring it to its original pre-exile form. And this had significant messianic implications. While Moses Maimonides is often upheld as a paragon of reason and as a critic of mysticism, many of his later ideas proved quite fruitful for later mystical speculation, including for his son Abraham. He shared his father's idea of prophecy as a perfection of the human spirit and a resulting, quote, overflow overflowing from God to the intellectual and imaginative faculties of the person. So a prophet is a person who has perfected these faculties, the intellectual and imaginative, to such a degree that he experiences an illumination or revelation from God. But doesn't this sound like basically anyone can become a prophet? Well, yes, that's exactly what Abraham and his associates thought. By reviving the ancient original practices of the Israelites, including the meditative and mystical practices that they adopted, one could open up the floodgates of prophecy once again. In other words, one could enter into a new era when prophecy was once again possible. In essence, Abraham defines prophetic experience as identical to the highest forms of mystical experience, the final step on the ladder of spiritual ascent. As you can tell, this is quite a different view of prophecy than what some are used to from a religion like Islam, but to the pietists this was entirely in line with Jewish teachings. This may sound familiar to those of you who have encountered the Jewish mystic and Kabbalist Abraham Abulafia, who lived at roughly around the same time, a little bit later. He too was a devoted follower of Maimonidean philosophy, but developed a form of prophetic Kabbalah where the goal of his complex mystical practices was a cleaving or union, a devikut to God or the active intellect, an experience that he too defined as prophetic in nature. To Abulafia, the ultimate aim, which was reachable through his Kabbalistic techniques, was prophecy. And in the pietist movement in Egypt, the idea seems to have been rather similar to this. All the practices that we have talked about, the fasting, nightly vigils, meditation, seclusion and prayer, had the aim of striving for the mystical prophetic goal. Under the guidance of a teacher, the spiritual wayfarers, or salikun, will traverse on the ladder of purification until they reach the highest stage or station of perfection, what Abraham often refers to as wasul, or literally arriving in Arabic. Here, they will experience the overflow of illumination upon the soul from God. Quote, the soul will perceive a grandeur which will dazzle it to a point where its existence will be effaced. Thereupon the soul will find itself bathing in the presence of an overwhelming light called the light of divine majesty. The soul will then perceive the mysteries appearing within this light, and this is prophecy. This experience, as the quote suggests, is identified with prophecy. Prophecy is thus something that is reachable by those who travel on the mystical path under a legitimate teacher, and perhaps something that, at some point, everyone will get to experience. Quote, 
The ultimate end or perfection of the soul consists in the conjunction of the human intellect with the angelic realm of separate intellects, both in the intellectual apprehension that occurs after death and in the imperfect apperception glimpsed in this life. We can see in the teachings of Abraham Maimonides and the Pietist movement the fascinating ways that different spiritual and religious traditions could influence each other during the Middle Ages. Abraham Maimonides stands in the shadow of his father and, in spite of this, remains probably one of the most interesting figures of his time. The spiritual practices and mystical ideals of the movement gives us a glimpse into the ways that Islam and Sufism could influence Judaism, but also into the diversity of Judaism itself. We often tend to place all forms of Jewish mysticism under the banner of Kabbalah, but here with the Pietist movement we arguably see an example that we could probably call mystical or mysticism with keeping in mind the fact that this is a very problematic term nonetheless here we see an example of what we could call jewish mysticism that does not fall under the category of kabbalah what is also noteworthy is the role of the great moses maimonides in all of this while he had nothing to do with the pietist movement as such as far as we know we can see that abraham and his associates employ the great philosopher's teachings to argue for some of their most lofty mystical ideas his teachings on the intellect and the human being's relationship to it, as well as those surrounding prophecy, among other things, provided some of the basis for the pietists and their doctrines. Similarly, when we look at someone like Abu Lafia, the same is true. He also employs Maimonidean teachings as central parts of his heavily mystical theories. Indeed, the entire philosophical basis of these two movements come from Maimonides in some way. This might seem ironic to some who share the idea of Maimonides as the great enemy of mysticism and champion of reason. Now, This idea has started to be at least a little challenged by some, and it remains a very interesting debate. The question of Maimonides' relationship with mysticism is not something that I will answer here, but it is interesting to point out that the heavily rationalistic philosophy of this intellectual giant became central parts of some of the most prominent mystical movements of the time, from the pietist movement of his son Abraham to the prophetic Kabbalah of Abu Lafia. I hope this was an interesting look into a fascinating movement in medieval Judaism. You can look forward to more episodes on topics related to this. I'll probably be making videos about Moses Maimonides too eventually, but also various topics within Judaism, Jewish mysticism, uh, Kabbalah, and all things like that that we all love to, to explore and, and talk about. And I will see you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.